0: Welcome to the Smug Film Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Clark. With me today via Skype is Greg DeLiso. Hey. You could say something more than that. That was oh. just like a little stutter.
1: Uh, yeah. Hey, uh, this is Greg. <laughs> Hello, everyone.
0: It was almost like you coughed. It was just like, I was just hey. like,
1: hey. Yeah, Oh well, okay. I was trying to say, hey, but you know, I said it too fast.
0: It's all right. Greg? I have to clear my throat. Hold yeah. On. <clears>
1: throat> <laughs> okay. Thank
0: okay. you for clearing it into the mic, by the way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah.
0: You give it to them raw, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, you can cut that out, right?
0: In theory, I can. But if it's funny, I'll leave it in.
1: That's true. You will do that.
0: I will do that. So Greg is here because he emailed me the other night and it was like this one of these long like epiphany sort of emails where he was listening to an old episode of the show. And I I don't remember what episode it is. I don't think he remembers which one it is. you were just kind of marathoning them, right?
1: Yeah, I was. Unfortunately, I don't remember which one it was, but I remember. I mean, I remember what you were talking about that had gave me the little, um, you know, eureka thing, epiphany. But um, yeah, I don't remember, unfortunately, which one it was. But um, yeah, what what, what what I would love to see what my crazy email sent because I'm sure at three in the morning it was. Let me three. see if
0: I can pull it up. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here it is. I'm gonna I'm gonna read it. This will be. Sort uh, of a dramatic reading of it. So this is
1: like me after like, you know, editing industrial, I don't even know what to call them. not industrial, editing work videos, uh, for, you know, um, like seven hours straight. And then like during that, listening to smug film podcasts and just doing a bunch of stuff. And then like my eyeballs are bleeding at this point. And then I like, Oh my God, I gotta do, I gotta send Cody this email. I just had a great idea. Yeah. So this is like what, a
0: 4am email. Yeah. All right. So here it says, dude, I was just listening to you talking about growing up and watching nineties kids movies that took place in suburbia and you thought it was a dreamland. I'm so excited to discuss this with you further and me and you need to do a podcast about you being from Brooklyn, watching the suburbs and me watching Seinfeld do the right thing and Woody Allen and thinking that was New York. Dude, we had the exact opposite experience. When I was 17 and moved to New York city, I thought it'd be, I'd be in Jerry's apartment and everyone would be weird brown jacket wearing intellectuals like in Annie Hall. Where I live looks exactly like American movie, which I have to admit is part of my fondness for the movie. It really feels a hundred percent real to me because I filmed things as a teenager with my friends in places that looked exactly like that. I will tell you this about the suburbs. The two most accurate portraits of the suburbs ever made by far are Fargo and Freaks and Geeks. I happen to be from about 10 miles from the fictitious McKinley High in Freaks and Geeks. My parents were married two years after the show takes place. That show is exactly suburban life for us. That's what it is all around 100%. And it's the only thing like that. I always grew up hating teen shows and shit because they were so plastic and fake. And I loved 80s and 90s teen movies because they contextualized teen life in a cool way. Like Clueless or Better Off Dead or John Hughes movies take the teen experience and heighten it into comical extremes. Three O'Clock High, Can't Hardly Wait, and others are great examples. Even SLC Punk, which also felt real to me. I know a lot of kids that acted like people in that movie. Anyway, just for your reference, the characters in all John Hughes movies are all very upper middle class. That classic Hughes house in Home Alone and all is easily a million dollar house. Think of it like this. My friend Doug's house cost him 360. I'll be able to get a house almost twice as big for half the money out here. Also the walls here are not always painted with posters for the current media. That's why the culture feels like it moves slower. Movies still do stay longer in theaters here or don't come here at all. It's slower in that way. Dude, to me, as a kid, New York City was only Manhattan and Brooklyn, and it was all just do the right thing or Goodfellas. So that was basically your your 4 a.m. email to me.
1: Yeah, even though Goodfellas isn't most of it in Queens...
0: I think so. Right.
1: But yeah, because try, I'm trying my funny thing is whenever someone talks about Goodfellas, like about in cont- context of New York, the first thing I try to ever remember is just all the little lower thirds uh, during the movie because they all tell you where it is all the time. Right. And it's it's I always feel like I always see Queens most most of the time. I, I know it's so. all over, but I don't know. I mean, I, I barely
0: don't. pay attention to those anymore because I just, you know, I've no, seen a movie a million thing, times, you know,
1: like, earned in my brain from being a kid and like watching it the first time, you know, like, but uh, I was always fascinated actually with the slight uh, nuanced changes in font and like boldness and stuff with the titles, because I felt like he did it on purpose to sort of associate with like the time period that it was, Hmm. but it was like really subtle. Um, Like one of them is a little bit more bold. I think the sixties one, than like the ones that take place in the seventies and the ones in the seventies have like a more seventies font, but it's all like, within i think it's Arial is the font but it's all like within closely like you wouldn't even notice i don't think if you didn't really pay attention but that's interesting i gotta take a look
0: at that yeah. It might have been so like intuitive and natural. I just never noticed it. Yeah, right. I think right. Tarantino he he plays with a ton of fonts oh, a he lot does, too. Like
1: yeah, insanely. A
0: He'll lot, just but... like change them up mid like uh, opening titles, right? Yeah, I
1: think one of the movies. I think the fonts actually change every single card. I think I, I think one of the Kill Bills or something like I that. Think I think it was
0: know. yeah. I think it was the first Kill Bill. Yeah. Which is cool, um, you know. Yeah. Whatever works.
1: Yeah, man. What so, all...
0: um, basically, New York City. When you were a kid, describe Brooklyn. Let's start with Brooklyn.
1: <laughs> so I, you just, oh man. So you just want me to like, okay, yeah. When well, I'm am cu- like,
0: curious what it what it looked like to you, well, dude,
1: When I was like, I mean, uh, I'm trying to think. Like, here's let me put it this this way. When I was probably eight or ten, I'd have to look at the year it came out, but that's when I heard George Costanza say, you know, because I knew that they were supposed to be in New York City. And I knew it was basically supposed to be Manhattan. Like I understood that. And it also sort of like it looked like the area of like Ghostbusters, which is like semi true. Right. It's not yeah. Exactly. Right. But it was like, you know, an old the other,
0: firehouse.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the like George once says in an early episode, um, he's complaining about a girlfriend and he said, uh, she, you know, she I did. I, I had to take her to this poetry reading in these burned out docks in Brooklyn. And like, you know, 20 years later, I lived in Brooklyn, right? And when I heard that line, it was hilarious as an adult because I understood completely, you know, the entire um, dynamic he's he's creating there with like this whole socioeconomic difference and the bohemia of like Brooklyn, It like it, you know, makes him feel annoyed and put upon and he doesn't want to have to go all the way out there. Like there's this whole different geography to it. That, that all makes like perfect sense to me now. It's a hilarious line. When I was a kid, you know, I sort of you could like understand what that meant, but it didn't like I couldn't attach any of that stuff to it. And so to me, Brooklyn was literally just like where the Godfather must have took (laughs) place or like Goodfellas or something like it was just like. I don't even know. It's just like the streets, like you walk through them and there's like burning barrels. uh, It's like the opening of Rocky or something. Yeah. And like bums are just everywhere and it's just like crime. And you always hear dogs barking in the distance and sirens. That
0: that sounds like Detroit to me. That's my my image of Detroit.
1: Dude, that's like, I mean, Detroit has obviously different faces too. Like the downtown area of Detroit is like actually totally fine and safe at night and like pretty and normal. But yeah, like right next to that, it is like that, literally. How like, that's far? Happening.
0: How far did you grow up from Detroit?
1: So I always do this as the little way to explain it. Everybody's familiar with Eight Mile because of M&M. Well, Eight Mile is a real street, and there are mile roads, and so I live on Twenty Two Mile Road in Van Dyke, and Van Dyke is actually a road that he references in some songs, I think. Which, like, so the way Detroit set up is because we were the first city with cars. It's set up the way to describe it, like a. If um, you ever seen that funny scene in When Harry Met Sally about the wagon wheel uh, coffee table, you know what I'm talking about. I'm not
0: sure I even finished that movie.
1: Okay, well, there's that the, was there's... one of those
0: ones like you try when you're a kid and you fall asleep.
1: Oh, dude, I love that movie. But um, I actually didn't come into that movie late in life. I was like in my early 20s when I first saw it. Oh but, yeah. But anyway, it, um, dude, Barry Seinfeld shot it's fucking great. Anyway, um, <laughs> there's a if everybody has seen it, there's that wagon wheel fucking uh, scene with the coffee table. People have seen it know what I mean. But the city was built like you have Detroit in the very center and then all the major streets come out like spokes um, from the center. And that was built that way because we had these cars. And so to get further out, they just kept kind of going straight out from the center of the city. Mm. So Van Dyke is just one of those roads that goes kind of straight out all the way from downtown. So if I go from my house where I'm at 22 mile road and I just keep driving south for, you know, roughly 13 miles, um, you know, I'm starting to get basically around into Detroit. But the thing is like the other weird thing about it is that it's the largest suburban sprawl in America, but it's it also might be I don't know if that uh, statistic actually extends to the world. It's it's the it's, it is it is quite possibly one of the largest like, landmass suburban sprawl areas uh, on the planet, for sure. And it's because of the automobile, basically. Um, we kind of just kept building out and out and out and out. So the entire, like, metro, like, if I say I'm from Detroit, there is is a truth to that in the same way that, like, someone, you know, from, like, way out in Queens, like, still lives in New York City. Oh, okay. Um, but, like, it's such a huge area. Like, we're talking, you know, maybe even 50 miles across in, like, one direction because you could go all the way up to, like, almost 34 mile road and then go all the way to the center and through the end of Detroit. And that's another 20 miles. So you're talking a huge, you know, area. So it's, it's really big and really spread out. And because of that, you obviously have a lot of different pockets. Like we have, you know, the largest population of uh, Middle Eastern people. I think it is. I'm not sure which specific, like, you know, I don't know. I don't even know what to call it. Um, We have the largest population of Middle Eastern people. Um, There's a huge Italian population where I am. Um, We have a, like, like, for example, um, what's his name? Jack White is from Mexican town, which is like such a weird thing to think of. And it's also weird to like look at him. Who's like this, like skinny little, like meek white um, hipster guy. And like Mexican town is like notoriously like you know, um, you know like not like not a great area. And I don't mean because of any sort of racial thing. I just mean like geography wise in Detroit, it's right. not in the safest place. He's sort of uh,
0: like later in his you know white stripes career, Didn't they like do a lot of more like Spanish imagery and stuff? Like did he, they
1: uh, yeah. They I started
0: wearing did. like uh, you know like bull yeah, fighter sounds, outfits and stuff.
1: That sounds yeah.
0: maybe that came from all that. Maybe this right. is some. Breaking, also, uh, we got a breaking music news lead. <laughs> we got smug music over here.
1: Yeah, right. Well, the other thing, if you want more smug m- music news is like, so Madonna is from like way more near me, which is just like middle of the road suburbs with like malls and stuff, which I think explains her sort of like when she first came out, her like Valley girl, like hip hop thing, because that's the socioeconomic like level that she was coming from. And she moved to New York. So mm. that I think that draws in the hip hop thing. But the so she girl- had
0: the same trajectory as you, dude.
1: Yeah, man. I'm like Madonna, dude. I had a teacher in high school and I swear to God, I'm not making this up because how could you even do this? Her last name, her name was Mrs. Zawiaruha, And I don't know how to spell that at all. But she taught what the hell is her name? What was her real name? Fucking Louise. Uh,
0: well, I think her Madonna's- real name is Madonna, like- though.
1: Yeah, but it's like Madonna. It's like Louise Madonna. Like Burke. Like It's some Italian or Polish name like Klansky or some shit. Look like it it's up. like yeah. But anyway, no. But but like Kid Rock. The explanation. Yeah, her
0: name is Madonna Louise Ciccone.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. I mean, Ciccone is such an Italian like name from around this area. Like oh, yeah? it sounds like any kid I went to high school with. Yeah, totally. Um, and then Kid Rock though. The explanation between behind his um country slash rap thing is that he's from Romeo, which is actually north of me and way further away from Detroit than I am. So he's all like, I'm Detroit, Detroit, blah, blah, blah. But he's from literally like, he's the na- next door neighbor to like farms, like t- totally the country.
0: So very rural.
1: Yeah, but what he would do as a teenager and like a young dude is drive all the way down into Detroit and hang out with the all the rappers and stuff. And actually the weird thing is, so the, the guy who's the producer and did a lot of the beats and the music and stuff for ICP, is this uh, really cool guy that just has a house like, so actually really near me too. It was actually the house that we mixed the sound for uh, hectic knife or actually not, no, sorry, not mix the house where we um, Pete made all the score for hectic knife. And that guy was the, he has these really funny stories of being in the studio and we're talking like 1988 or something. And he's like, yeah, you know, this really skinny, like, loser kid would, like, come into the studio. And he's like, I was figuring out all the new technology, like, making all the beats for the rappers and stuff, like, around Detroit. And then this, like, skinny white loser came in. And then he got on the mic and started singing. And he was, like, fucking crazy, like, amazing. And both those stories are about Kid Rock and Eminem, like, oh, wow. it's same same experience. He was like, dude, it was crazy. Like, this little, like, because both of them were, like, cause, and especially, Kid Rock was just like this really skinny little like nothing dude from again out way out in the country. But he came in and just like did all the rapping and stuff. And his whole thing was really weird. Like he would drive from here to New York and he did that for like a bunch of years until he sort of built up enough following to do like a big showcase. And then he did that in the like right before he broke out. Um, It was really weird. I don't know. But I never
0: would have known that you knew so much about Kid Rock, but I guess it makes sense because you're you know, he's local.
1: Dude, I've met like many people that went to high school with him, that worked with him. Like I, you know, I, I I'm, I'm, I made a couple of music videos and a little documentary for a guy that uh, has a like a gold record and a Grammy thing because he was the drummer on Bull God. It's just, it's basically like if you're here enough, like you know, you just they're around. I mean, it's not, it's like all the artistic, like, all the people doing like artistic stuff, especially in the suburban area, like you all sort of end up. Hearing about each other or knowing each other, if you're that's kind
0: of cool. That's kind of what I wish uh, Brooklyn was like. Well, that's and what I, I wish New York was City like, was like. It, that's
1: it, what. That, well, that's to get back on topic. Now we're way far away, but to, to like that's what I thought Brooklyn was like because this is the other thing that you got to think, and this is like the big reason that I moved to New York is because when I was like think when I when I started getting into filmmaking, you know, and I'm talking about like 12 years old, my dad turned me on to Kubrick because he loved 2001. And when you read about Kubrick, the first thing that you learn is how the whole um, growing up in New York and taking the pictures for Look Magazine. And But that was like way back in the 30s. But, you you know, it starts this New York line. And then you get to Scorsese and Woody Allen. And you if you do that, you stay in New York. And then you get like – and this is just what I did and I'm saying. You get to Spike Lee. So all the way between the ages of 12 and 17 before I moved – actually moved to New York. New York was like a second home in the movie sense because nothing else anywhere else felt real. Like if I watch ET or the burbs or whatever, these are movies shot like in LA on sound stages or on locations in LA, but they're made purposely to look like they take place anywhere in America. And the thing is that like, yes, the terrain of ET does not look anything like Michigan. It's completely different but that doesn't make it feel like it's not in Michigan. Like when I watched ET as a little kid, it's just like, Oh, this could have been down the block. Like I I don't, you don't really think about that difference because you're just so involved in the movie. Whereas I got a little bit older, then you start seeing like, basically when you, when I got into movies around the age, 12 or 13, that's when you start thinking like, Oh, well, you know, like, okay. So ET actually does look like, and poltergeist and all these things, like they look like LA and that's why. And then you start learning all this stuff, but I, I stayed in New York like for sure. And, and I, again, it all kind of happened by accident, but this is like a weird thing. And it's, it's really true. My mom had a huge crush on Steve Buscemi when I was uh, about 10 and 12 and stuff. And because of that, I watched every like independent movie from New York through that because he was a New York guy. And the funny thing was, so like in New York stories, the Scorsese one, He's in that for like a minute as a stand-up comedian, and that's like what year is that? Like eighty-nine or ninety or something. So my mom was tracking down all these scores, all these um, Steve Buscemi movies, and the one, the two of them that really affected me the most, uh, in, in a very Brooklyn, New York, like all that stuff way, and which ultimately led me to to living in New York, were uh, Tom DeSillo's um, "Living in Oblivion" and Sam Cass, who I now know, and we interviewed for the site. Great
0: guy, um, Sam yeah, Cass. First,
1: yeah um, search for one eye Jimmy and I'll explain search for an eye Jimmy. And this, this will put into per, for perspective purposes. Like I want you, I want, this is a good story to put in perspective, like the suburbs versus, um, you know how things have changed. There was a blockbuster that was less than a mile from my house, which again, as a kid, that still meant you drove there with your parents. They drove you to that place. Right. So you, I mean, I could, I rode my bike there too all the time by myself, but it was like, if it was, you know, Friday night, we were going to get in the car and go to like McDonald's and go to, um, you know, blockbuster and, and do that. And one night I was looking on the shelves and there, I saw Steve Buscemi's picture on the cover of a movie and I had never heard of it. And it was weird because my mom and I, this was back in the days of those Leonard Maltin and they still make them, but like the Leonard Maltin had those pill size reviews of like every movie ever made. And it was like, as a kid, it was like, how did he watch 50,000 movies? I don't, what do you, I don't get it. I was like so fascinated by this book. You know, you, you know, I'm talking about that book that was like, yeah, every, yeah.
0: Are you talking yeah. about like the huge ones?
1: Yeah. The giant, they're like, they're
0: yeah, like, I was just I talking to, uh, to John and Jenna the other day about those huge fucking books. Like, uh, yeah. I remember the video hound one with like the little oh, dog yeah, have- on it i have that one yeah i mean those were like if you didn't you had to have those before the internet or else you never settled any fucking argument at all of
1: course those were those books were like a huge touchstone for me growing up and a really important like object in my family like we all had them we all like it was important and they were imdb before there was imdb for sure and we i i used to look at that book every like between the ages of like eight and or six and fucking like 15. I looked at that book every single day of my life. It wasn't until I saw Leonard Maltin talking on Kevin Pollack podcast that where he actually explains the origin of that book. I thought it was really interesting, but anyway, that's a whole other story. Anyway, where where was I talking? What the hell was I talking talking about? about
0: You were, you were in the video story. You saw the Buscemi face.
1: Well, this was the thing that was so like crazy. This is pre-internet. This is like pre-everything. And we were tracking down these Steve Buscemi movies using this book because they had them all listed. And, and it's funny, like they would even have like the movie 20 bucks or things to do in Denver uh, when you're dead. These like really rare uh, indie films from that period were in this Leonard Moulton, like, cause you could look in the index and it would say Steve Buscemi and it would list everything that he was in. But search for one eye Jimmy was not listed among those things. I think it might've been because it hadn't come out on video yet or something. I and mean, there was a whole like legal blah, blah. But there it was on the shelf at Blockbuster. And I I think the funny thing is like, dude, that Blockbuster that I'm talking about hasn't existed in that location for like years. And all but one of the video stores that I used to go to ride my bike to and rent stuff from as a kid are gone. And the whole, I mean, as we know, the whole industry is gone. But it's interesting to me to think that I could be a kid in the suburbs at such a young age and get turned on to such a kind of like what felt like this rare artifact of like this independent film film, sort of, like, you know, finance on a low budget made in Brooklyn by these guys, you know, in, like, just... At a
0: blockbuster, no yeah, less. In, in
1: a blockbuster. That's the thing, like... But like it's like imagine going to a red box, you know, at like a, at a supermarket, and being a kid my age, and being and seeing this menu and seeing like that come up somehow, or or being able to wander around in that thing. And I think like like in Clerks, for example, when when they're talking about going to the video store at the end, and he wants to go to a good video store, and he wanders around like in this beautiful place, sea of VHS tapes. Like that's exactly what it was like as a kid. Like you would just walk through this like huge building, and it had just like pictures from movies everywhere and movies playing and music. And like there was candy and just like VHS all over the place. It was just the most fun like thing ever. And I'm glad they're gone because I think like it's better to have it all on a computer and just be able to like sit and look at it. And I think you can do the exact same thing, but it was really like fun. And that's where I, that's where you would learn like that stuff. That's where I think learn- it's
0: a, it's a good way to engage with it as a kid. I think as a kid, yeah. It's more exciting if you can walk around through it. I don't know yeah. if you can ever fair. get that same excitement if you're just a kid on a couch like browsing Netflix. Yeah, I think it's, that's fair. So like but, we had that great, you know, ability to really walk around through something yeah. we were exploring. It was like being in a toy store, which I guess kids still have because there's still toy stores. But the idea of like walking through movies, they're not really going to have that experience.
1: Right, right. That's not, that's true. But yeah, I mean, I guess so. Uh, okay, the, the big thing. I, I mean, we've been talking about my side of it, and I still have I have my notes here, and I have more like kind of things to get into. But I no for for you, like, I got to hear like more specifically, like, what movies were you watching as a kid and TV shows that were painting a picture of the suburbs, and then what 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 did you think it was like, you know, in the rest of like America, basically?
0: Well, I really thought Home Alone was it. You know, I I think a lot of the John Hughes stuff, yeah, and I guess. You know, now that you're talking, you you said in the the email about them being very well off and how those are like million dollar homes and everything. Yeah, yeah. you know that that didn't really occur to me as a kid. But then again, money doesn't really you know enter into your mind as a kid either. Yeah. But I always felt like, you know, here in the city, there was like this sacrifice of you don't have as much space and you don't have a lawn and you don't have like a basketball hoop in your backyard (laughs) and all that. Like you don't have all those things, but you're in the city. And it always felt like I was being deprived of some sort of childhood that I could have been having oh, uh, on the TV. You know? I, have,
1: I have such a funny detail about that. I was walking uh, with a friend of mine in Brooklyn one time in, in your neighborhood and I saw a kid on his, like by his stoop. And he was like bouncing a basketball off the side of his apartment, like just standing there doing <laughs> that. And I was, I just turned to my friend. I was like, dude, fuck, man. Like, I'm so sorry you had to like grow up here.
0: It dude, just looked, I have it like done the that. saddest
1: image of it because I've my, done that. In my reality, dude, every one of us had basketball hoops in our driveway. And we had, and until when you're a little tiny kid, your driveway is the size of like a regulation court, dude. You don't know the difference. Yeah. And it's like, you could play any sport. You could play football, basketball, baseball, hockey. I mean, obviously, hi- hockey was the one. That I played with my friends, but it's like you're, you have all this space and all this stuff to just go do it. And basically it's like, you know, you're, when I was a kid, we still lived in the culture of like, you got home from school. And if it was a nice day, you went outside and you ran around with your friends until it got dark and then you went inside and ate dinner. I mean, that was like real. And like people talk about that like that sounds like a grandpa, like, oh, you know, in my day and we used to do it and the mom would call us in. That's true, though. Like that really. Your happened.
0: grandpa sounds black.
1: <laughs> well, because I don't know. Well, I'm, because it's <laughs> I, I mean, because
0: not in you doing a black voice. It just sounds like very naturally well, black. Well, no, the, the like he's just a my, black guy.
1: Well, no, but it is a black eye because I got. I'm thinking in my mind of Spike Lee movies that have that scene. Yeah, yeah, the, It's always like the. It was always the mom though. She's always like, "Get in here! Get in now! It's you!" Like it's always that. But but that really happened. I mean, every like there, you know, I I don't. When I was a kid, we 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 played inside in the summer when it got too hot out because it was just too fucking hot to play. Right. So we went inside and we did, did stuff then and we watched Tremors 2 like 50 times in a row just because it was the summer and it was hot. That's what you did. And then in the winter, the same thing. If it got too cold, we came inside. But otherwise, we were just outside. That's just and but we we weren't, you know, it was like everywhere. But I, so I don't want to stop you. But yeah, it was just so funny because I think about that all the time like seeing the kid bouncing the ball against the like, you know, his stoop or something. And, and, and the other funny thing is i never realized that like the show hey arnold the cart, the little cartoon nickelodeon show was like new york or brooklyn or something and that stoop kid yeah to me it was just like this weird like i didn't i thought i mean because i guess it was a cartoon so it was just like well they just live in a weird like urban place like i not where i live just some urbanized place and then uh, now think back on it like they have they get all excited when they can clear that lot to play baseball in yeah like they're like we got to clean all the garbage out and get this big lot to play sports and i was like dude why don't they just like use their backyard you know i I, I understood i understood in the context of the show but like stoop kid not leaving his stoop like that makes more sense now because i can see like you know in the movie kids like harmony kareen could be like yeah we're gonna make this character be like the stoop kid because i like grew up with stoops around me and i understand that like to me, I would like, there's no such thing as a stoop. I don't, I've, the only thing that a stoop was to me was what they were saying it was in Hey Arnold, which was a pair of stairs that went into a house.
0: So you learned I, that word from that show?
1: Yes. Yeah. Wow.
0: Exactly. So that's intense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was, a, there was definitely pride about having a stoop, you know, yeah. when, when I was a kid, like I was always really happy that I had one. It was that's like, cool. that yeah. was like the backyard, you know?
1: Yeah, dude. I totally interrupted you. Like you said, Home Alone was your touchstone. And I want to dig into this more like, what are some other things you were watching and what was like, what was your pick, the picture that was being painted of, of the suburbs and stuff. You were still kind of doing that. I interrupted Yeah.
0: You. I mean, a lot of it was television. A lot of it was like Boy Meets World, you know, that sort of thing where like you see these, you know, perfect set constructed houses and you just assume that that's how the light should be in a house. You know what
1: I mean? Right. No. <laughs> like I, even I, yeah,
0: down to that, like, you know, you feel like you're living this very dimly lit existence, you know, in Brooklyn. And I think a film that really nailed that was um, Daddy Long Legs, which is a Safety Brothers movie. They they so fucking nail growing up as a kid in like New York City. And like I've heard of that. Yeah, you should check it out. It's not like, uh, you know, it's what you would call a bunch of footage. And it's what <laughs> I would call partially a bunch of footage, too, because it's just right, it's right. very loose. But right, as okay. far as nailing vibe. It mm-hmm. makes like Squid and the Whale look like fucking Boy Meets World. Like right, it's, right, it right. just so fucking nails the vibe that I, right, I really right. want to have those guys on the show because there's, awesome. there's definitely like a shared upbringing that I would love to discuss. And
1: well, I'm glad, I'm glad that you brought up Squid and the Whale because I want to ask you about this. And this is really specific because Squid and the Whale takes place basically the year that I was born
0: and takes and, place 80, in my neighborhood where I grew right? up.
1: It's, yeah. 86 is the year it takes place, right? What, what year, what year are you? 88? 88, yeah. Okay. So it's, yeah. And it's, but it takes place like right where you're born. And obviously, I've, now that I, I know you and, and uh, other friends there, and Dina, you know, my friend Dina, hey, Dina. So I've been in that neighborhood a lot, spent a lot of time there. And I think w- when I watched Squid and the Whale, and I watched it obviously as an adult because it came out when I was an adult, but, but, um, my feeling was this is like a sect of that neighborhood of people who like actually are, you'd like, Like, you'd have to be, like, I believe that there were, like, authors and stuff that, like, lived there that did well and stuff, but, like... I don't think anybody that I met, like I never met George Plimpton and watched him hang out in Park Slope. But I could imagine that in the 80s, if George Plimpton lived in Park Slope, it would like look like that, basically. Well, like, it that was like sort of made sense to me, I guess.
0: It was like that with running into like Buscemi because he's he's lived in, you know, my neighborhood as long as I've lived in my neighborhood. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah. I mean, I would just see him always. And there were certain characters like that that you just see. You know you're absolutely right with like writers and like uh, illustrators and stuff like that. It was that kind of neighborhood. And Squid and the yeah. Whale was absolutely spot on. I mean, that's a, that's the best depiction of that neighborhood I've ever seen. And yeah. I, I mean, I, I adore that movie. I think it's hysterical. I love it.
1: I don't. I actually don't. Uh, hate it, which is surprising because I, I That's really don't, high
0: praise coming from you. Well,
1: I don't, I really don't like Noah bum. How do you say his name?
0: Bombach. Yeah. yeah.
1: And I actually, I was listening to him on, I think the commentary of squid and the whale and he was like really pretentious. I could, oh, he's
0: horrible on that, but
1: yeah, but it's um, such a
0: shame, man. Yeah. He's terrible on every commentary. He's, he did a life aquatic one with Wes Anderson. They both just, I mean, Wes oh, really? Anderson is probably my pick for douchiest commentary guy. Okay. Like he's just, if you, if you listen to any of his, oh, I yeah, mean, the, the one,
1: first commentary I ever listened to in my life was uh Royal Tenenbaums. And that must've been in 2003 or four.
0: Yeah. And, um, bottle rocket, bottle rocket's yeah. a terrible one. The, the yeah. thing that bugs me about bottle rocket, and I think I wrote about this on the site is a, you know, he, he starts it off and he can barely remember what's in the fucking movie and he <laughs> doesn't care about the movie and he yeah. dismisses it so much. And for me, it just, it's such a, it's such a horrible thing to hear because I feel like in bottle rocket, he nailed certain vibes that he has never gone back to. And I agree
1: with that. Like I, he just, I, he became
0: yeah. like Tim Burton where he just had this one vibe and he just hit the same notes over well, and over and over again I'm, for the rest of his career.
1: I'm starting to wonder that like, like let me put it out this way. Like, and I, I'm glad you brought Tim Burton cause I'll make a quick comparison. We'll use Tim Burton and Wes Anderson because these are two guys whose careers have seen to have taken this sort of like, staunch turn into like now forever their work will just only be like totally esoteric up their own ass you know it'll it'll be like this is the Wes Anderson thing and this is the Tim Burton thing you know and we all I mean we all understand what I'm saying I don't need to elaborate my point is that like I actually think that like as kids I think like they always dreamed of being where they are now and everything that they made up until that point was just, like, navigating the political system of, like, making movies to, like, get to that point. That's, mm. like, my explanation now, maybe. Like, maybe Tim Burton sat around and was, like, I, as a little kid and was, like, I really want to remake Willy Wonka and make it all, like, shitty. I mean, not shitty, but, like, <laughs> but, I mean, and the same thing about Planet of the Apes. Like, maybe he was 10, saw that in the theater, and was, like, I really want to remake Planet of the Apes but make it all, like, dark and futuristic. I yeah. Mean, that's not like it's unheard. plausible. That, that it's like definitely makes plausible sense to me. Yeah, because it, it all it like it makes sense. And then it's like, oh, of course it took him, you know, 40 years to get because I think about it like this. What's his name? Um, Peter Jackson was like, I always wanted to make Lord of the Rings, but it took him, you know, 25 years of like making other movies and Hollywood and all this stuff, building up on his own to get there. And now, dude. His entire career is literally just fucking... I mean, dude, he wanted to make Lord of the Rings so much that he turned The Hobbit, like, one fucking book into, like, 80 billion hours of content. Yeah. Like, he obviously wanted to make that shit a lot, dude, and that's, like, all he gave a fuck about, you know? So, because it's, like, he dedicated... You know, I don't know. That's just a theory, but it's, like... Uh, and I, I'm not saying it's, like, I'm not, like... I mean, I'm not in their fucking head. Who knows what they want to do? Yeah, but it I just kind of the- makes sense to me. Like, they're always... They were... All, all along, they were building toward this aesthetic, but they didn't have, like, the money or the... Resources to do it. So once they got there, they just like stay there because that's what they like wanted anyway. Yeah, that's, it's weird.
0: it's definitely plausible. And like the thing that bugs me about that is that it sort of becomes like a dismissal of the past. Like yeah, the yeah. Uh, the you know the criterion for Bottle Rocket. You know they redid like the art on the on the box so that it looks more like his other movies, even though the actual right, movie. Right. And, and Rushmore, too. They they have their own look that doesn't yeah. ascribe to... Uh, well,
1: Criterion always does. I mean, they, Criterion is always... For sure. Always, like, but they made it...
0: Though. Like, if you if you hadn't seen Bottle Rocket <laughs> yeah. and you just saw that that box, you'd be like, oh, it's a Wes Anderson. It just looks like right. Life Aquatic and the rest of them. Right, exactly. I know And it, it absolutely doesn't. And it, it has a great <laughs> look to it. It's, it's a very oh, well-made film. It's a very well-shot <laughs> film, and it should be appreciated on that level it's almost like a retroactively trying to connect like the entire filmography when it shouldn't be
1: no i agree and i think unless wes anderson can like at any point in his career can somehow reconnect with what he was doing in his first three movies which i think are by far his best i don't think he'll ever make anything that like i care about again
0: yeah Uh, i i've i'm fucking done with him man i i couldn't get into budapest i i hated moonrise I love the, I love Fantastic Mr. Fox because and I felt I like... I see all
1: those in the theater now, too. Like, I saw the, those the other two that you mentioned, the the Budapest and the other thing. I saw them in the theater. I was like, dude, soul. I loved you as a child. <laughs> yeah. But, I,
0: but I whole, saw Moonrise in theaters and then I, I wasn't going to do Budapest in theaters. I just had a bad feeling about it. Oh, I had same, a sour I, I, taste. Same
1: thing as you. I, yeah, same thing as you. I, exact same thing.
0: But Fantastic um, Mr. Fox, I loved because I felt like that worked for <laughs> animation where it doesn't work for live action.
1: I agree about that concept, but I thought it was just boring. And I, I found that here's what's like weird to me about the Wes Anderson thing with the animation. You would think that Wes Anderson would be perfect for doing animation because of his visual style. But I personally, my again, I'm totally against the grain on that because dude, his visual style is the whole concept of making reality look animated and like boxed in and weird and geographic and all this stuff. That's what is interesting about, his movies is that he takes his characters and his drama and puts it into this like weird visual sort of, you know, box that he does. And I, again, I think it worked the best with bottle rocket, Rushmore and roll Tenenbaums. Yeah. I think but that's, that's his style. But then when you translate that to stop motion, it becomes way too static and like dead and like lifeless because it's not, it's like you, the whole thing is this mechanical visual process. Now it's no longer um, like it doesn't have any more freedom. Like, I want to be able to see Bill Murray run around and go crazy inside the boxed in universe of Wes Anderson, which is, you know, Rushmore or Gene Hackman do the same thing. That's, that is sort of where I get excitement from it. But like with the fantastic Mr. Fox stuff, it was, it's so flat. It's just like, yeah, I don't know. It feels gross. I don't know.
0: Well, I like the look of it, but, But um, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I think you know, we're talking about his first three films. I think you can almost draw a comparison to, uh, M night Shyamalan at that point. Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, (laughs) and Signs. You know, a lot of people don't compare Wes Anderson, would even think of comparing him to M. Night. Oh, no. There's a very similar trajectory where I I like a lot of M. Night's later stuff. I like The Happening a lot. I like The Village. I like Lady in the Water. They're fun. I love The Village. I
1: like Lady in the Water. I don't like The Happening.
0: But, Um, I mean, the whole thing of, like, them just going too far off the rails... It's a right. very similar trajectory.
1: Shyamalan's career is tough. I don't, I, 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 I'm hesitant to compare it with anybody because I think for, like, and I, I have to sort of confess that I'm like, I'm working on like a bigger essay about signs and then about everything else. Cause I think when I talk about signs, I like to talk about signs sort of in the way that I feel like John talks about movies a lot where it's this entire historical, like fucking archeological dig of the movie too, because I like to put signs in the context of uh, his whole career. It just right. is interesting to me. Um, and I think with, for me personally with Shyamalan, you got to just go film for film. Like obviously the after earth is like the fucking worst movie ever made. But I, my thing about that is like, yes, it's bad, but I would like to discuss the fact that I think he was sort of like a director for hire underneath Will
0: Smith. And it definitely it, seems like whole, that. Yeah. yeah.
1: There's this whole like thing. So it's like, I, I I don't, I can't to me. Wes Anderson is like, he's Stopped capturing his interest, my interest, like generally. But I'll still t- look at it and try, maybe. But with Shyamalan, like I'm definitely every time out, I'm gonna like try it because I think each time out there's like a different story to how- what the movie, how the movie is like made and why. Like the Last Airbender, it's a remake. It's one of the fucking remake of like Japanese cartoons. I don't even know what it is. Some well, it's of- an
0: American cartoon with a <laughs> okay. fake Japanese style. So that's thing. It's like
1: up until then they had all been screenplays, so it's like. That's obviously different. It obviously didn't work. It's a terrible movie. But like, you know what I'm saying? that It's like there's a different sort of giant mechanism happening with a Shyamalan career that I, I always like go to for each one. To me, right. the Tim Burton thing works because he's like this visionary artistic guy. Then he's like making all these things that kind of feel similar. And then all of a sudden there's like this plunge where they're just like hyper his stuff and like way overblown and glossy. Like I feel like um, that's the same thing with anderson like he starts off and it's like the rustic edges of like indie filmmaking sort of made him restrain himself into making good movies and then once he sort of like found his opening to just do whatever he wants it's like no i have everything has to be fucking pastel and like annoying always like that's what i want like it's you know it's it's It's
0: very it ends up being very one note because like for somebody so meticulous it's weird to think of them ever being one right. note, but also, when it's like, all of the same aesthetic, it just, that's what it becomes. And I feel like no, exactly. Royal Tenenbaums was a great example of it. It rode a lot of different oh, yeah, lines. It has, a
1: great, it has a great dynamic range. Yeah, it so it had, does, some uh, stuff was Russia. like
0: pastelli and some stuff wasn't. And mm-hmm. it was like, a it was a good balance. And then after yep. that, even though I like Life Aquatic a lot, that was definitely when he felt, he went like full retard to borrow yeah, the Tropic thunder term. Uh,
1: yeah. That was his first, uh, like, plunge
0: yeah
1: you know. but hold on i want to go back to something because this is we got like way off <laughs> on other but it's okay i mean whatever we'll figure out but okay when you talked before because this goes back right to the topic when you talked before about looking at these movies that take that took place in the suburbs and thinking like well that's how the lighting's supposed to be in a house and like i i totally understand that because it's like
0: especially sitcoms yeah
1: right right and that the, the obvious irony is that like it's essentially the opposite like remember when i said i like how they lit the interiors of um gilmar girls yeah um, absolutely if, if no, if people haven't seen the show i'll explain what i mean fantastic that, fucking show yeah well i'm it's okay i don't i, can't I make, love it i can't give it that much <laughs> but um, i think it's brilliant but uh okay the, the way they lit the interiors in the show was it's pretty and I'm I'm mostly talking about the interiors of I should be specific here, of course. I'm talking about the diner and I'm talking about uh fucking the the two main girls that they're what the fuck are their names? What are the characters? Lorelai and Rory. Lorelai and Rory, yeah. Their house that they live in together. So like not the grandparents' house, uh Bernard um Edward Herman, you know, rest in peace and whatnot. But um so not the grandparents' house, but uh L- Lorelei and them they lit the interiors where it's like the light is like this harsh sunlight that's shining in like halfway through. So like the bottom half of the screen will just be like, basically like almost hot, but not too hot to where it's like distracting, but like, you know, over like overexposed to the point where it's brighter. That's way more accurate. One pet peeve. I always have in every movie ever made. Is that the interiors in movies? Every fucking practical lamp is always on. Oh yeah. Why the fuck would you have all (laughs) the lamps on if the sunlight is coming in through the goddamn window? And the funny thing is, I you always notice the directors that are way more conscious of details because they they try to avoid that stuff or they do stuff that's like way more natural. And I'll I'll get into that more. Like the the Gilmore Girls thing is just like an easy step to think like, okay, that looks more like how a house looks inside rather than like a plastic sitcom, but 1000% Steven Spielberg who grew up in Ohio in the suburbs and then moved to LA is unequivocally just, just by far. I mean, it's like blows the water away from everybody. Fucking crazy is the best at handling lighting for the interiors of suburban
0: homes. ET man.
1: Well, ET is the thing I'm going to go to because as a kid, you know, E.T. was shot in L.A. It took place on sets. There's a scene, you know, the whole opening sequence, though, when it's like before Elliot goes out into the house when they're all eating pizza and they're, they're, they're that's exactly out, the what I was thinking of. Yeah. yeah, that scene and independently of each other, you and I noticed this and also uh, Breeze always felt that my friend Mark Breeze, um, we independently of each other always felt this when I was a little kid. You know, that scene was shot four years before I was born. I'm from three thousand miles away from where it takes place. That feels 1000% like I'm just in the room hanging out with those people eating the pizza. Yeah. And the funny thing about that is I always like to take that and take it to this like place of like fuck you, you know, Cassavetes and all these fucking, you know, Italian neorealists and like fucking um French new wave J- just because That was a big well, you net guys, you just <laughs> Well, it is, but but hear but hear me out. It's because Steven Spielberg, who, you know, at this point in, in, in our lives is, you know, the absolute epitome of like the upper echelon of Hollywood royalty filmmaking of money and prestige and Oscars and fucking everything there ever could be everything that Hollywood is Steven Spielberg, like, is that times 10 billion. He's the most like, you know financially successful fucking prolific, like filmmaker of like uh, an entire century. Right. So we got that happening and and ET made more money than any fucking movie, like in the, in, in the world at the time. And yet you got all these fucking crazy people like writing for Cahiers do cinema and fucking whatever. And they're trying to tell me that it feels more real when there's a camera on a dude in like Italy outside and it's fucking dubbed and it's all like crazy or some fucking diner in fucking France. But it's like, dude, that is only True relatively speaking by the fact that those people are from those places. And it feels like that to them, or by the fact that they were just like shooting on a completely low budget and they were, they had a fucking camera in a room and it was really happening like that. ET was fucking made with like millions of dollars of Hollywood money and major lighting and a bunch of actors and a tons of auditions and all this giant process. And at the end of it, I'm in a fucking room with these people that that really feels real. And it's like all that, like real humanity, empathy machine stuff that John was talking about or that Ebert says it's all in that scene in ET, and it's all recognized and appreciated by everybody because Ebert talked about it to no end and fucking wrote that beautiful um, essay about it to his like as an open letter to his uh, grandkids who he watched it with and all that stuff. And I guess to me, it's like. When you have that scene in E.T., you can just erase like all that other stuff in film history because E.T. becomes the blueprint for how to do that shit like, in an interesting and profound way. But that's a crazy tangent. But what I wanted to get across about that was that there's no better scene in movie history that feels like you're sitting in a suburban home than a scene in E.T. And and the reason is the, comb- the, the thing I've been able to identify, the two things that he's using, is a Robert Altman-esque use of overlapping dialogue. Like right. everybody likes to tra- trace this thing back to. Um, so genre is this, uh, you know, the, the French filmmaker from uh, the 40s and, uh, and, and I'm sure, you know, before and after, give or take 20 years, I don't fucking know. But uh, the rules of the game, you know, is widely considered uh, along with Citizen Kane to be one of the top, you know, two or three best movies ever made. And one of the reasons for its sort of like touchstone importance in history is obviously because they, he was trailblazing this idea of overlapping dialogue and having the ability to sort of have uh drama be blocked out in a in a less rigid way like it was less fucking coverage and more like talking and and sort of feeling things out but it was still a taut drama and there's even these classic stories of like renoir wouldn't even watch the scene he would just like go somewhere and listen to it on the headphones and if it sounded Dude, I fucking right.
0: love to do that yeah. have you ever done that
1: i haven't but it sounds oh i, I mean, fucking
0: love it i yeah, do that but, i did that a lot with uh rehearsals Which was like when I was shooting in public, if I wanted to just get away with it, I would just hit record on the camera. You know, she would be doing whatever she was doing. The shot would be framed and I'd just be like looking at my cell phone and looking off somewhere else. It's a fun way to do it. I had no idea he did that. That's great to know.
1: Yeah, that's like, that's the famous thing with genre war. And then obviously in the seventies, um, and, and it's funny because obviously Altman later in his life made Gosford Park, which is like a remake of that movie. But, uh, obviously Altman sort of followed this line of the genre of war thing. And again, obviously I'm cutting out like the hundreds of other people that experiment with this stuff, but this right, is, right, I'm, right. I'm using Altman because he was part of that class of dudes that Spielberg sort of is associated with. And I think that this was the overlap because Altman was making these movies like Nashville, which I mean, dude, I fucking, I've heard John talk about Nashville and I also was glad to hear at least that Jenna said that she couldn't get through it. I have talked to like millions of fucking cinephiles about Nashville and John is literally the only one. And I'm not being fucking hyperbolic. I'm not kidding, being sarcastic or anything. I swear to God, I'm being honest. He's the only fucking person I know that has ever finished watching the movie Nashville. <laughs> I believe that Ebert finished it cause he's fucking written about it and I've read it, but like it's not, there's no way that that happened, dude. Like I remember being a kid you know, being 13, exploring all these movies from the seventies and getting so fucking excited about Nashville, but I got it. And it was like the fucking, you know, it's the two VHS tapes. It's not the one it's, it's casino, <laughs> you know, it's Scarface, yeah, it's, yeah. Too fat. it's Titanic. It's a thick thing in your hand. And you get to that 1st fir- you put that first tape in and there's no way you're getting to that second tape, dude. It's just, it's not going to happen, man. It's crazy.
0: It's but, like you look at the first tape and it's all worn and like the tracking's yeah, exactly. all fucked second up. Is- you put in the second one, it looks like a fucking Blu-ray. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: But 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 the thing with Nashville that, that he ex- did this extension was, you know, famously, obviously, he was uh, putting a lavalier mic on all the actors and then mixing the dialogue at his, like, will. So he would just have Shelley Duvall and whoever the fuck else, and they would all roam around in Nashville, and then he would film it and then fucking sort of mix it together and all that. And I think it's Spielberg sort of taking that concept, but then infusing, blocking, and Camera dynamics with the blocking, so like the camera is going to move in synthesis with the blocking. So when characters move in and out of a frame in certain ways, or move toward the camera, the camera is going to move toward them and move away from them. It's going to have a fluidity that sort of makes logical sense and like an, um, with an emotional resonance. Like so, the camera is moving forward toward a camera current character. We know we're supposed to be engaged with that character, and vice versa. Like. Spielberg has always been so, like, in touch with that kind of stuff in the same exact way that Scorsese is and Zemeckis is and all, all those guys. That's like Yeah, there's e- a bunch
0: of those guys where just camera moves come so intuitively, too. Yeah, you know?
1: that's their thing. So when you got the scene in E.T., it's the last step toward that is the fucking lighting. And it's that because they got the Hollywood toys, they know how to, like, recreate lighting on film that's going to look natural, but be lit enough to not be like that drab natural look where it's like, you can tell that they just like turn the camera on outside and are like all the way open with the aperture. It's like, we can light it and make it right. And what, but what they did was you talk about the plastic, like overlit look of sitcoms and all this stuff. It is true. Like when I look, when you look at fucking home improvement in Seinfeld, like they're just blasting fucking two K's all over the set. It's basically the way they lit stuff in the fucking fifties, but just yeah. less shadows. Um, so it's that idea. But in E.T., in that scene when they're eating pizza, you got the overlapping dialogue, you got the, the camera movement that's sort of just like you're watching this happen, but it sort of flows you with what's happening, too. It's like a, an interesting sort of wide lens way to, like, observe and be a part of it. And then the lighting is just like I remember, you know, we all remember that that harsh overhead. They have that hanging light over the table where the kids are all eating pizza and that lights on and it's hot and it's hard. But that's the way that shit looked. That's when I was a kid, I was in that living room with, you know, it was nighttime. It was summer. The windows were open. You could hear the bugs outside and the light came down on the table. Like it wasn't just my living room. My, my, our furniture didn't look anything fucking like that. None of my friends furniture did. We didn't live in a terrain that was like that at all. But it that's the way it looked and felt it. The synthesis of those things came to come together. And it's very there's like a clear path of cinematic tools that came to that. When you have that synthesis of ideas, that's to me like the only time when the filmmaking is like transcendent and like the best thing ever made. Because And that's sort of why I use these examples to quote, not I mean, saying reject is like silly, but it's like it's like why I don't care about watching the rules of the game. I mean, I've seen rules of the game, but I don't care about it because, yes, it did this thing like, OK, but ultimately the movie is boring by a result of just the movie itself being boring, but then also add on top of the boringness, it's datedness. And then it becomes this thing of like, I'm interested in the fact of learning like, oh, Spielberg didn't just invent like this concept of the overlapping dialogue and the way to shoot this. He, you know, it wasn't just like a Eureka idea where he had it. There's a line to be followed down from Altman to this and that and him and all that stuff. And that's really interesting, but I don't think it makes you like the movie like or not like it that's where i get confused with john i mean about the whole like old movies being good and bad and all that stuff like i don't right you can
0: you can enjoy the history of it but when it comes to enjoying the movie it's a very separate thing
1: yeah yeah but anyway to go back to some of the stuff because one thing i thought was interesting that john was talking about well uh, before before you go back to
0: whatever you're going to et absolutely with the light i i i had that in my childhood too so it it definitely wasn't just a suburban thing it was a very universal childhood thing which is pretty amazing
1: oh definitely amazing and i I think that and i think like and how amazing is that that like you know you got a guy who was at the prime of his career or sort of near actually well not a kind of on the rise like you could probably argue that between you know late the late 70s and all the way into the early 90s was his prime so i guess that's kind of whatever but but i mean you got this guy who's at the prime you know this prime of his filmmaking career and he's he was able to capture something so universal for like everybody in america that like we had this opposite experience of where we were from and of just all media Um, yeah it was a perfect crossover
0: for everybody
1: and the funny thing is dude i didn't even really like et that much as a kid that was neither did i
0: but i like that beginning
1: yeah, me too. At the beginning because the beginning was the magical thing where it was like you you're going to find out whatever this alien encounter is. The rest of it, I like the relationship stuff, but I always, it it always felt drab by the middle and the end for me. I I do like E.T., but it's not my favorite. Like to me as a kid, I was, I had to watch Indiana Jones, obviously. And uh, Jaws, those were my ones. It's kind of
0: underwhelming for me when you see E.T. Like they always talk about like in movies where like if you see the monster, then that's when it gets like, oh, because like then it's out of your imagination. I'm always very underwhelmed by the look of E.T. I just don't like the look of him. And I almost feel like if he had a more humanoid look, if it was almost like a Starman version of it, you know, like I would have enjoyed the entire film more. Yeah, it would have been less magical per se or whatever. But I just feel like just the look of him gets in the way for me.
1: I can understand that. I mean, I think obviously he's supposed to be like the cute like version that's for like I never found him cute. I just he looked like a
0: fucking burn victim. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I feel like Mr. Show really dude, nailed that a, with like their sketch about like the uh, the fan of the band where like he he loses like his whole body and he's just looking <laughs> like into... beef jerky. Yeah,
1: dude, that's.
0: I mean, <laughs> he, like, that's what just E. T. looks like to me. Yeah. It just looks gross.
1: Okay, that's fair, but you got to admit, dude, that when E. T. is hiding in the stuffed animals, that's cute.
0: Yeah, but that's like that's uh, more behavior oriented. No, I know. I'm just saying. Know? I mean, that's cute, dude. I like also, all the beats of it. I just don't like the design. Like, I love. I love Encino Man, and I feel like Encino Man was a more fun version of E.T. for me. No, I
1: know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. I'd, I'd rather mean, watch
0: just, Brendan Fraser like, do the same kind of E.T. Mo- movements than watch E.T.
1: That, 1000%. Two fun little facts. On the Star Wars commentary, the guy who does all the fucking sound recording said that he met the woman who does the voice of E.T. online, I believe at a bank. She was behind him or in front of him, and she talked, and her voice sounded like that. And he was like, dude, do you want to be an alien in a movie? And she was like, why not? And she did. That was it. And I'm sure she's a fucking got some money now. But, dude, that's crazy. That's a great fucking story. Yeah. And then also, I'm glad you brought up Starman because we are both. I'm sure we both know the whole story about, like, how Carpenter kept getting fucked because, like, when aliens were bad guys, he made, like, a good guy alien movie. And then when aliens were good guys, he made a bad guy one. (laughs) I never heard that, but that's hysterical. That's, like, the thing. The Thing and Starman came out like at the wrong times, and it fucked his career like hardcore. Because people were like, "I don't want to watch Starman. Like they already made a nice alien movie. Like <laughs> And then when people made, when people watch The Thing, they're like, "No, I want it to be like ET. Fuck you." <laughs> so it everything got fucked. Yeah, but, I feel uh, like
0: in the long run, that's when he really like people came into him. You know. Yeah.
1: Well, he has that hilarious quote where he's like. In, in in France, I'm a genius. And in this country, I'm fucking whatever. And in America, I'm a bum. Yeah,
0: yeah. he
1: really can't get a job. I mean, He's really. like
0: De like Palma in that sense yeah. where it's yeah. like he's still like one of those guys where like me and you like him and like people like us like him. But Although by I and will, large, people don't really know him.
1: I will say to be fair, though, and this is just this is just me personally, because I know a lot of people like you and other friends that are like really more supportive of them. I like I'm I'm not nearly as excited by De Palma or Carpenter as I am by like other dudes, basically. So for me, it does make some sense. But I can I understand exactly what you're saying, because I have I've you know, you included in some other friends that are like even more into them than I am. And like are like, yeah, like the thing that I thought was really mean spirited and a big fuck you and a stupid thing was in that book. Easy Riders Raging Bulls at the end, they have this big like list of like all the directors and their filmographies, but they don't include De Palma. That's Which bullshit. is like insane you know. because they include guys that like they barely even mention in the book, and or guys that only made like a couple movies, and it's like, dude, De Palma fucking introduced the world to De Niro. He introduced Scorsese to De Niro. Exactly. He's fucking. He's still best friends with fucking Spielberg like now. And if it wasn't for fucking De Palma, Spielberg would not be anything that he was, including Tarantino. Everything Tarantino ever did, he fucking took from De Palma mostly, and no one even really cares about that because even though De Pal- Tarantino does give him credit. I almost believe sometimes that like Tarantino isn't even aware how much he like is obsessed with De Palma because I always got the sense that like as a little kid, like the first like cool thing that like he ever watched was probably like just to kill or fucking blow out or whatever. And then it like just like inundated his brain. It's kind of like how I am with like like to me, a movie will always like I will always like my dream, like my fucking feeling will always be to like handle a camera the way that it moves the way it does in Jurassic Park. And Zemeckis movies and shit like that, mm-hmm. because that's like what was fucking burned in my brain when I was like a kid. Of like, this is how to tell the story the best way with these camera movements. This kind of like look and all that shit. I feel like Tarantino had that with De Palma, and like, because dude, if you look at Kill Bill and fucking um, uh, and Glorious Bastards, like all of oh, the yeah. tension and all the big sweeping movements and all that stuff, it's it's straight out of like every fucking De Palma thing.
0: Yeah, like, absolutely. So cool. Absolutely. And he does,
1: he absolutely does give him cred all the time. Like there's a lot of great interviews where Tarantino sits down with De Palma and like talks to him and like tells him how awesome he is and shit. But I think he, uh, I think it's like, sometimes I almost feel like when he cites other movies too, it's like, dude, fuck that. you That's all De Palma though. Yeah. When like, he cites
0: other movies, it's usually like a tiny thing. Like it'll yeah. be like a line or it'll be like some little tiny music cue. But when it comes to De Palma, it's so huge. It's so looming right um also you know just to say real quick even though you're not a huge fan of like de palma and carpenter don't you feel like you should live in a world where they're coming out with a movie like every two yeah. years it, I still it, it's feel that. so I mean, weird i
1: feel that way but they are also really old like they i are. will add that to the quotient of it
0: they are but, really old that's that's true but it just but, but, feels but like say they should be say doing that this. anyway
1: dude if cronenberg can do it and Woody Allen yep. can do it, then they absolutely should be in the same class. Because and Cronenberg, I feel
0: like, Cronenberg almost couldn't do it except for the hit of History of Violence.
1: Right, yeah, that's true,
0: yeah. He was yeah. He was like teetering on that level of, eh, you might not get another movie, kid.
1: I mean, ultimately the problem is that, and it's not a problem, I mean, I can't say it's a fucking problem, I mean, it's not a problem, but ultimately the, the, the thing that's happening is that like Hollywood changed into like a certain thing and these new guys... Like, even though they're like indie, quote unquote, which they are, but that you know, even though they're indie, they all came up in Hollywood. Like, that's the thing. And like, Hollywood is not going to give Brian De Palma $30 million to make a movie because that's retarded, it doesn't make any sense to them. But in 1996, they gave him a hundred million dollars to make, um, fucking Mission Impossible or, or not maybe not a hundred, but they gave him, you know, a bunch of money and he made the movie. Like, the point is that in just the last 20 years, the landscape changed and these these guys that had an independent spirit in 1970 don't know how to have an independent spirit in 2015 or if they do what they end up making is like fucking redacted which is like the worst movie ever made
0: horrible yeah yeah so
1: i mean that's that's the problem but the funny thing is dude like dude redacted is exactly the same thing as greetings and hi mom it's just that dude you're fucking like 70 years old like it doesn't it just doesn't work anymore like it's not the same i mean you know, you've seen Greetings in High Mom, or do you know what they are?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. his I His very early that, stuff. And yeah, High Mom right. is the one with, like, really, really young uh, De Niro. Well, they, they both
1: have uh, greeting, De Niro's and Greetings, Oh, too. yeah, he's in that one, too? Yeah, Hi Mom is, like, sort of like a sequel. It's like the extension of the De Niro character from Greetings goes into High Mom. And, look, as movies, they're not great, but there are actually transcendent moments in both of them that are way ahead of their time Um, that I think are, like, like this is the thing that I get that's like I I like they're not good. So it's like and I, I guess I just keep going back to like the stagecoach idea just because it's like and I don't mean to do this, but it's just like I don't think stagecoach is good. But I can admit to you that there's probably like shots in it that are like fucking awesome or transcendent or valuable and like in some way. I think it's like where I see the difference is that I don't extend that to the movie being good. I just like the stuff that I like about it or the stuff that I think is about it but i think a movie has to be the sum of all its parts so like as the sum of all its parts greetings and high mom are like not good movies but there are literally like 20 minute sections in high mom that are fucking amazing that and i think i've written about this a lot on the site when i did my diploma thing but it's like yeah there's that 20 minute section of the be black baby stuff in high mom that is like you know totally predates all the fucking fake documentary stuff totally fucking predates all the like horror movie um, fucking, you know, paranormal activity type of stuff. And it's the same sort of like idea, but it's really fucking tense and like scary and gets all crazy. And it's, and it's, it's amazing. um, And it holds up like you could, you could make that today the same way and it would still work. But um, yeah, dude, I don't know. What what do you got? Cause I, I have other <laughs> questions and comments about the topic.
0: Well, we're running a little long. I, uh, I think you we can, should cut to mailbag. Yeah. First question is from Ned, and he asks: Have video games changed movies and how we watch movies?
1: Yes, but it's hard. It's extremely hard for me to uh, answer that because I don't play video games. Were you um, ever
0: into video games,
1: dude? I w- <sighs> so. This is the thing, man. I was. I had the parents where my mom was like, "They're bad for you. They're going to rot your brain." So she was like anti them. So I was only allowed to ever have a Game Boy. So my experience of video games, I never could get into them the way that a kid can when he plays them like by himself or with his sibling and it's like at home like that to me that's what movies were they took that place of that um whereas most kids sort of had that in addition to movies so I could only sort of look at them vicariously through my friends and I have a lot of great stories of that um but when I look at video game, like to me everything changed when Nintendo 64 had Mario like walking around in a 3D landscape. And again, even though I didn't have video games and I, you know, I was, I'm, I'm my, my like knowledge of them is way more distant. I, I think that changed. it. I think that also changed it with movies though, because there's so, like that automatically made movies, um, become more cinematic because the side scroller thing is just like this flat thing where you're you're going in. A, like, it it doesn't resemble a movie,
0: right? There isn't all, as much to draw from.
1: Yeah. Which could possibly explain why the Mario Brothers movie was so insanely bad because they felt like they had to make up like a idea, which they didn't, but they felt like they did. And
0: we've we've talked about that on the podcast before me and John and Jenna. And I think I think that's an interesting point, because if they had had the the 3D Mario source material to draw from, it probably would have been way easier for them. I think think the side scroller aspect kind of fucked it. Like
1: I think all that stuff in this, all the stuff is there in the side scroller, but I think that they rejected it because they thought of it as like a kid's toy. Whereas I think if they saw the 3d thing, they would actually be more interested in like borrowing from what that was because it just looks so dynamic. But, but anyway, so, so, so I, my answer is this, like I think in the future, as we keep moving video games are going to are going to synthesize with movies and essentially erase a lot of what movies are. I think the movies as we know them are going to fall by the wayside very 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 slowly
0: and become more um, interactive.
1: And become more interactive. Yeah. I think I again, when I say slowly, I mean like could be like over 100 years maybe. I agree. Like, yeah. But I but I think that like I think that the recording device is always going to be necessary because you have to like film the president talking. So you can always like make a documentary out of like real things. And I think that art form will be really difficult to replace because other than like capturing a live hologram or something, it's like you still have to film the person and then edit together. So I think documentaries will sort of keep movies relevant on their last legs. But I think it's just a matter of waiting for the technology. And I, and I think that video game technology is like the first like big sort of step toward taking the way that we can tell a narrative and change like the thing. And I, so I think like movies might get more like, they're like, I don't, I think they'll just change in that there. It'll be especially
0: genre films. Yeah. You know, you're big blockbusters. There's going to be more of an interactive element. I can say, I think, you know, as far as movies now and movies over the last 20 years, I think part of how video games have changed that is in the genre stuff. Like, Horror, especially. I feel like horror has gotten more action oriented because of video games. Because if you're doing a horror game, there does always have to be a, a action element or else you yeah, can't you actually like play it. Zombies. Yeah, you have to shoot yeah. shit. Yeah. So I feel like horror in general became less of a you know, people getting picked off thing and more of a fighting back thing. Right. And that you makes see, sense. You see that yeah. in, in a lot of the big, you know, horror movies. You know, not necessarily stuff like paranormal activity. But, uh, you know, the Resident Evil movies, you know, it's not just those anymore. It's not just the ones that are based on video games. It's ones that aren't based on video games. And I also think that with action movies, there's more of an element of putting you in the seat of the the character. You know, there's more of a because you can get that at home. So you have to be able to get that in theaters to some extent in order to be engaged with it. With like a movie like Die Hard, you were never like physically in the seat of him. Whereas with like a movie like Crank, there's definitely more <laughs> of a a feeling where you're having an experience that he's having, right? And right, I think right. that definitely comes from video games. So I think it's more, dude. Uh, Crank is sweet. In Crank a way. is great. I mean, Crank is brilliant. Crank,
1: I mean, look, dude. It's this is this is where I think people also like. It's hard for me to like say it because it's like I don't think Crank is a good movie, but um, I definitely like watched in the theater and was like, what I'm seeing is like, like I how do I explain? It? It's almost like. Cause I don't want to say that I liked it. Cause that to me, that means it was good, but I, that's not true. Uh, I, more, it's more, it's more this thing of like, dude, it's fucking awesome to me that two like dudes in their mid twenties took like fucking XL ones or whatever the fuck shitty camera. This was yeah, on fucking and they, rollerblades. Yeah, on like skateboards. And were like, they gave them enough money to be like, let's have explosions and gunshots and like stupid shit. And they just like run around. Like that's because I did that. And it's like, I, so I can relate to that. But again, it's not a good movie. It's just like that experience is fun to me because I'm a fucking geek. Like I'm a, like like I could watch a hockey game that that is like a shitty game. It's not a, like a like a good it's a boring game, but I can be like invested in it because I care about the narrative of like the team or some shit. It's like it's sort of about like using your critical faculties to determine whether or not something is good or bad, but like but separating that from the experience of just like liking it because otherwise you start trying to make arguments that like the room is good because it, I I enjoyed it and it's like, well, it's not, that's not true though. There's a difference there. I think,
0: um, yeah. And I think the good thing about crank is that it definitely blows by, you know, it it doesn't, it doesn't take any pit stops. It really just fucking zooms by.
1: And it also, it's like, dude, like, dude, I mean, I saw that in the theater and it's like that you, you see like Google maps, like logo on the screen. Yeah. like when They use that and they don't even give a fuck. It's just like, yeah. Okay. Who cares? Like whatever.
0: Yeah, but I, I love. I I do love that 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 fuck you editing. Like we can just do anything approach. Yeah, we
1: don't, yeah, they don't care about it. I mean, it's all, Yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. Yeah. But um. Uh. Yeah. But yeah, dude. Video games are gonna ruin everything. All right. I mean, I <laughs> guess if you no, not, That's not true. I mean, I like. But I mean, like, I always like fucking hated that Ebert was like they're not art because that's like stupid. Like it just sounds stupid. Like it doesn't even make sense, and it's like based on nothing. And I tried to read his whole thing about like why that made sense no it, it
0: just doesn't make sense yeah
1: it's like silly yeah but yeah dude i don't know they're gonna ch- i mean and basically my thing is like if you like movies in their current state and you plan on living to be like 500 years old like don't expect to um you know like fucking have movies to enjoy when you're like 390 because i don't think they'll be, they exist
0: <laughs> i don't think you'll exist at 390
1: well if i was planning on <laughs> being 500 then yeah
0: yeah all right but, so uh, the next yeah. question is this is from Alex, and he says, "I just watched Under the Skin and loved it. And the horror sequences in the first act, or whatever, were some seriously surreal, heavy, great sequences. What other horror movies have done that so well? I can't think of any more. Give I me recommendations,
1: understand. dude. Why are people so into this movie? Under the Skin? Yeah, I mean, it's a listen, listen, dude. It's the same exact thing as full last disclosure.
0: Year. I haven't, I haven't seen it yet.
1: Oh, really? Okay." Yeah. It's the same exact thing that happened last year with upstream color. It's, it's like,
0: I, I, I wouldn't a, say it's the exact same. I think a lot of people weren't on board with upstream color though.
1: Well, okay. I, this is this all I'll say. This is, this is what my experience has been with these two things. I I'm looking around on Netflix. I see upstream color. I don't, I don't know. It's the primer guy. I'm not thinking about that. And I don't, I don't, I didn't also didn't even recognize him. So I was, I didn't think about it. I didn't notice it until the end. I was like, Oh wait, that's the primer dude. And then I was like, Oh, it's just follow up and all this stuff. But I, that was all came after I watched the movie. It's a bunch of nonsensical stuff that's just like, here's stuff of sound recording and all the weird, just whatever, just a bunch of things happening. And then you go online and all these people are like, it's the brilliant thing of the year, and this stuff. And he comes back with the genius and all that. And it was like, so, you know, I mean, again, I have come to expect it at this point. It's like, that's what happens. But the same thing on her skin, like I put it on and it was just like, okay, so they got like Scarlett Johansson to be naked and, you know, that's like something, I guess. And I don't know. I I like I guess to me, first of all, the first thing that happens is that when I see someone naked in a movie and it's not like obviously as like a joke, like, like uh, for example, like in The Good Girl, when they do the full frontal on um, what's that guy? The guy that directed, oh, uh, that
0: fucking guy, he's like guy directed. Oh,
1: yeah. Bl- the guy who's in all the Coen Brothers movies.
0: Oh, um, yeah, Tim Blake Nelson.
1: Yeah, dude. Yeah, yeah. You, you see, is it, I think it's O that he directed. Or yeah, one of he those? did.
0: Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot okay, about so that, but yeah. When you see
1: when you see him naked, um, it's like a joke, right? It's not like gratuitous. It's just like he's naked. It makes sense. Um, when when you see Scar or like Johannes, in
0: sideways when the running to the car. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. Like, and I'm not saying like you know I'm not. First of all, I'm not saying that jokes can't be gratuitous, and I'm also not saying that like those. I, I guess what I'm saying, uh, how do I go back? Okay. I guess what I'm saying is that like to say like Scarlett Johansson needs to be naked for this scene for it to make sense is silly because nothing needs to happen for that to make sense. Like if, if a, if a red cube like floated by during that scene, it wouldn't not make sense. It would still make sense because what you're looking at is literally just a bunch of like weird, weird, things happening and a red cube floating by would be weird. So to make the argument that like, no, she has to be naked for the story or the art. It's not, that's not like empirically true. So it feels gratuitous to me and I don't understand it. Like and it's, and so when I see a movie like under her skin, I basically just start thinking like, it's interesting to me that some guy was able to convince Scarlett Johansson that she should be naked so that this thing can exist because she agreed with that. And that's like weird to me. (laughs) Like, it's weird to me to think like, like, I like to think like, I could be like, Scarlett, like, you know, you don't have to this, Like you, you have a lot of money. You could just like do something. And then she'd be like, no, but it's like art though. And I'm like, yeah, but like, I mean, you could just, you could be naked in a, in like a, a different thing. Like you could be naked. all. I mean, like I I could be like Scarlet, you know, you were really good in ghost world and you never just like took your shirt off for no reason. And just like showed your boobs like that, that didn't happen. So like you could, you could be in good art and not have to do that. Like it's, it's, it's like a weird thing. I don't understand and it's not i'm not i'm not i'm also not trying to like say she shouldn't do it or fucking you know judge her for doing that but but i'm it's more just like a really weird curiosity because i don't understand like right. what's the point of this happening like why am i looking at her naked and again like look she hey she's attractive like i'm not like necessarily complaining that she thought it was a good idea but but i also start feeling like maybe in the macro it's not the best idea because it sort of sends, it's sending like a message that like you should just be naked all the time for like, it's like that fucking girl that put the fucking iPhone in her pussy and then Usher uh, charged it at at Art Basel or whatever it's called down in Florida. And it was on TMZ. It's like, yeah. yeah, that's not fucking anything. You put an iPhone in your pussy. Like you're not a feminist. You're not like supporting, you're not doing anything. You're just putting an iPhone in your pussy. So it's just like, to me, there's not much difference between iPhone pussy and Scarlett Johansson naked in this movie. And it's just like I look at the movie, it's like, yes, the the abstract imagery is like very cool. But it's like, guys, it's not a fucking it's it's a it's a giant it's a 90 minute long or however long. I'm sure it's longer nightmares. It's I'm considering today's standards. I'm sure it's like three hours, but who knows how long it is? I don't know. But it's it's a it's a longer than an hour fucking experimental thing where Scarlett Johansson is naked and she walks around. And fucking guys are there and they have boners and I believe they even there's even sex. I don't know. I I obviously couldn't finish it because why would you do that? But I watched probably 45 minutes of it and it's just like um, nothing in it was like scary. That's the other thing I don't understand.
0: So you Uh, wouldn't call it a horror movie then?
1: No, I just it's just an experimental movie. If anything, it's a science fiction movie.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah. See, uh, I always thought it was a science fiction movie. I never realized It could be considered a horror movie. But but also,
1: dude, people consider Jurassic Park a horror movie. That's retarded. Dude, dude, my mom was terrified of Jurassic Park. When I saw Jurassic Park in the theater with my mom, I was six years old. And again, dude, all of us kids were like, dude, this is fucking awesome. But dude, some of us, our parents were like scared. Like they Mm. were like, dude, this is the Raptors are like, actually like they were actually considered like, and again, it's hard for me to like relate to that, but it's actually true. My mom did it. And I know other people too. And I know I've read, like I've read things where I've heard it been classified as like sci-fi horror Jurassic park. (laughs) And it's like, dude, what? Like I didn't even know, but dude, think about it though. There are genuine dude. There's a fucking thing where like his arm come down and then it's like ripped off and it's just a fucking, um, you know, remember what the mm-hmm. uh, Samuel Jackson, dude, that's taken out of slasher movies. That's a fucking horror movie joke, but it's like, it's in Jurassic Park. You don't think about it, yeah. but it still has those touches in there.
0: For All me. right. Well, to answer Alex's question.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well to answer his question, like, no, it's a, it's not even a movie.
0: No, that wasn't his question.
1: <laughs> his <laughs> Why, question
0: I, was <laughs> he, he wants some, he wants some good surreal oh. sequences and like some surreal horror sequences.
1: Like ever.
0: Well, ones that you like. Are there any that you like? The
1: the Shining, the whole movie. The the Shining is the. He's seen The Shining. Come on. (laughs) What do you mean that's the best horror movie ever made, and it's full of abstract art? All right, so that's your pick. Well, well, wait. Let me try to. I'll pick that one. You think on it, and I'll. I'll, I I have my answer. Okay, you say them, and I'll try to think of other
0: ones. All right, pretty much every fucking Stuart Gordon movie. Um, I would say specifically probably King of Ants, which is kind of a deep cut of his, but has some really great surreal sequences that might be up Alex's alley. Again, I haven't seen Under the Skin, so I can't give a, an exact like accurate uh, recommendation, but I would say maybe King of Ants. That'd be a fun one.
1: Thinking on it more, I would I would just say David Lynch stuff. I mean, because like, I mean, Mulholland Drive has scared me before, like that part at the end. But again, I, everybody's seen all that. Yeah. Um. I don't know. I mean. Okay. Maybe if you haven't seen everything from from David Lynch, but he made an experimental short called The Alphabet.
0: Ah. Um, yeah. That, early see, on. That's a. That's a good. That's a and good one. And the
1: grandmother's pretty scary too. He made a, He made like a twenty minute short uh, back in the late seventies called The Grandmother. Yeah. But that thing's scary as fuck.
0: Yeah. Anyway. There you um, go. See that was, you came out with a really good example.
1: Yeah. Well. Also, dude. Um. That claymation shit that they were not doing. The fucking. Um. Well. Okay. Let me. I wouldn't say this is like scary, but if you just want like abstract art, that's surreal. That is definitely like dark and twisted. If if anyone's ever watched all the tool music videos, the the guy in the band who made those was heavily inspired by these two guys named the Brothers Quay mm, or stop yeah. motion. Animation artists, really good stuff. Yeah. Who did um, they did the music video of Sledgehammer for Peter Gabriel, which obviously is not scary at all. It's, you know, bright and fun, but their, their own short films, um, which they made in like the, the eighties are, um, really like, you know, sort of like have a dark twisted sort of quality, like way beyond like the sort of like, you know, family fun of Nightmare Nightmare Before Christmas, which like, if we consider Nightmare Before Christmas, which actually is like really beautiful and artistic and like is, is dark and scary and kind of creepy, but it's obviously for kids and families, like their stuff is literally just like some weird invented, like creature will be like doing some thing with some other creature like it you know just weird dark creepy kind of stuff
0: yeah and there's Uh, a great uh dvd set if you can get your hands on it yeah i have that it's awesome yeah so yeah that's that's some good recommendations for alex Mm -hmm. okay our last question is from crystal and she asks is there validity and importance to the criterion collection and how people perceive it keeping in mind that they also restore films as well as distribute or is it just overpriced dvds with pretty box art
1: I mean, yeah, it's it's just overpriced DVDs of the box art, but it depends <laughs> on if you like the movie or not. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think, guess that yeah. question is impossible to answer. It's like if they come out with the Burbs, I'll buy it and spend the extra money to have like the thing. Are
0: there any but, criterions that uh, you have that you yeah. you love? Wh- yeah, Which I ones?
1: Love the Rock. Um,
0: <laughs> I knew you would have that one.
1: Well, I have The Rock. I have Roll Time Bombs. I mean, I would have the the early West Anderson. I don't have all three of those, but basically anything that they've put out by uh lynch or if they have
0: um eraser head
1: okay yeah then that's i mean that that that's criterion i thought that's not david lynch or whatever
0: no just recently
1: okay well they oh really okay because the blu-ray oh okay because i don't okay well yeah but there are some i mean yeah like if they ever put out coen Brothers stuff i mean i guess here's it's hard it's hard for me to like answer that because i don't actually know what they have out but um how do i say this like i have a bunch of criterion dvds i couldn't tell you offhand i dude i have rashomon for some reason i don't even hate it
0: <laughs> i never would have imagined uh, you having rashomon
1: let me fucking look around I'm trying to like look and see if i I do i would say i probably have at least 20 i have damn um, some foreign ones um look at you dude i could fucking define where they are because I, I and i can't really like walk around like yeah, no,
0: that's had, all right. We can just move along. But
1: anyway, um yeah, no, but I mean the I think the answer inherently is just uh I think across the board though the answer is they're just overpriced DVDs because even if even if they put out the burbs and I wanted to buy it, that doesn't I don't think that even means that like that thing like has any value, it's just like for me. So it's like, yeah, if you like the movie and you want to pay 30 bucks to have those features, then that's what it's worth like Criterion as a company, like doing that, like I don't, I don't care. It doesn't have anything to do with me at all. I don't. It doesn't mean anything
0: to me. Well, I think the the restoration aspect is, I think, the most important aspect because a lot of these, you know, movies, it's the best way to see them. And yeah. I, well, I
1: agree I, with that. Like they do a good job. I think, like they, I mean, if you're if you are the audience for those kind of movies, then yes, the, I guess the answer is yes. They do a really good job at that.
0: Yeah, I think they're great at what they do. And also, you know, they're pretty generous with the uh, 50% off Barnes & Noble sales. Like twice a year, <laughs> you can go in there and if even if you have a... Um, you know, a, a 10% bonus on your discount because you're a Barnes and Noble member, then it's it's 60% off. And then usually you'll have like a 20% off members coupon and then it's 80% off. And that's how I've gotten like most of my criterions is, you know, you go in May or November and you just stock up on the ones that you really want and you're buying them for lower than if you had, if you were reselling them. And that's yeah. really the way to do it. You know, I, I, I wouldn't buy a criterion at full price. I would never do that. That's not right. something that I would do, but you know, I'm a collector and you know, I hunt, I hunt deals and you can find them for a lot cheaper. So I, it's not really a hit on your wallet. Like it would be if it was full price, but I agree. Yeah. The full prices are ridiculous on some of these.
1: And abs- I guess what I should say is, um, you know, absolutely. You know, I think cr- like Criterion, like, I guess, the the question is like twofold because it's like. And the like, the abstract, like no, who gives a fuck? Like they could fucking cancel the company. Like I don't care at all. But as like a movie geek person, what I would say is, I think you could give them a lot of credit because they trailblazed the idea of like the commentary with their um, laser discs. Mm-hmm. Like that was that was the early that was like one of the early. Yeah, um, people for
0: people forget that they about, were doing laser discs and yeah. they were doing like awesome editions way before they yeah, started exactly. doing DVDs and shit. So,
1: Yeah, so I think, like, I guess what I would say is, like, you know, the staff at Criterion are great about, you know, like, just, you know, preserving movies and, like, getting us to learn more about them and stuff. And, I I mean, if you're interested in that, then, yes, I think they're a good company. But I guess it's, like, keep in mind that they cover a certain, like, sect of movie that, like, they're not going to release fucking The Burbs, probably, or they're not – or if they – you know, they're not going to release – a lot of stuff that I like.
0: Have you ever oh. discovered stuff by it being put out by Criterion?
1: No, I haven't. Uh, no. See, that's, but, but that's I-
0: happened a lot for me. Like I got into movies that are like favorites of mine now, like spirit of the beehive. Mm-hmm. Like I would, I never would have heard of that if it wasn't for, for Criterion. Uh, okay. I never uh, okay. would have gotten into Carlos Sora. I never would have gotten into some of my favorite guys. I would never would have discovered Ackerman. If it wasn't see, that makes sense. Like,
1: i feel like yeah if, if you are into those kind of things like i definitely think it would be a great like menu to look yeah. at as far as that stuff I, i'm also remembering um the uh do the right thing criterion thing is awesome mm-hmm. that, that was like a huge one for me as a kid that was great but yeah like and, you know i think i think that's what it does like if if, if like you know i liked to do the right thing i grew up watching it on vhs and then obviously um you know, when the criteria, when the criterion DVD became available, I was able to get that. And then you can just dive into the movie like way more. So it's definitely valuable like in that way. And I, I wouldn't like discredit that. But and I, again,
0: I, I know, see it yeah. as a, a cheaper, better, more, uh, you know, autodidact version of film school, you know, cause you can, yeah. oh, you yeah. know, would you rather spend the money to go to film school or would you rather spend the money on some criterions that you could even just turn around? You know, if you buy them, like I said, if you buy them at certain times of the year with the coupons and with the, the Barnes & Noble discount, you can get them and then you can, you know, turn around the ones that you don't even like and you right, can right. make like a couple bucks profit even in some instances. So I think I think they're priced well in that sense. And I think they're very valuable as far as like a film library to explore. You can learn a lot from watching films that maybe you don't even love all of, like uh, the, the Makoviev movie, Sweet Movie. I wouldn't call it a great movie, but there are some sequences in that that are so fucking harrowingly great that, you know, I'm I'm so grateful for for seeing that. And I again, I never would have even ventured into that if it wasn't for seeing it being put out by Criterion. So I think right. they're right now they're the best film school around. They're who you can point to as if you want to learn about film, pop in some fucking Criterion's And even just fucking browse their site and see what's on uh, Netflix and Hulu. That's a great thing is that there are a lot of them are on Hulu now. So if you just go on the Criterion site and you just browse around, you know, you'll find ones that, you know, seem interesting and then you can just go on Hulu and watch them.
1: I think that's true, but I don't know that it's specific to Criterion because I think like, again, the, 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 I think that the film school thing that you said is absolutely true, but I don't think that it applies only to Criterion because I think like nowadays DVDs are so rich with stuff anyway. For sure. Like for me, you know, I'm into different kind of movies say that are, that wouldn't necessarily be on Criterion, but like I have a lot of DVDs that are awesome that, you know, we're just like are that film school thing for me. Like I, I, as a kid, I remember growing up and I remember the, um, all this features that Robert Rodriguez was doing on um, mm, El Mariachi yeah. and Desperado. Those were huge. Uh, Perfect swingers, example. All those little the, mini film school yeah, the, courses. The swingers, yeah, yeah, exactly. The Swingers commentary and the Swingers uh, featurettes and stuff. Those were huge. And again, those aren't even very good movies. Like I don't care about Swingers anymore. And I, oh, I, I love like Swingers. Really? And I, I, I liked it when I was 17 for about a month. That's about it.
0: Yeah, I think you make a good point is that DVDs are film school. Yeah, I think
1: it's DVDs in general. So I think if you're looking for... Like uh, any kind of um, knowledge in filmmaking. Like I guess to me it's almost like – this is the de- like the delineation I want to make and the distinction is like some people seem to say like if you're looking for like information about film, go to Criterion. But if you're looking for like information about movies, go to like other DVDs. And it's like, well, it's all the same thing. Like there's not the- – the information that Criterion is giving you about these kinds of movies is just – a part of film history just a part of what movies right are. it's a subsection like, yeah you could you could watch the fucking commentary on big and learn just as much about movies as you could from any absolutely criterion thing so that, that's, that's you kind of i mean that's why to answer your, the, the question it's kind of like yeah but it, de- it just depends on what you like i mean right they, they become
0: are, they become yeah. almost like a default go-to Yeah, And that's good and it's bad because, you know, there's so much there that you can just become obsessed with just that and, you know, get distracted from the fact that there's tons of other stuff that you can just explore. Yeah, exactly. All right. So that was a good answer. I think we can wrap up this episode. Uh, Thank you. For uh, doing this on Skype, you gotta do more Skype episodes, man.
1: Yeah, now that we've done this, the first this is our first uh, Skype in, and it works. It's easy, so yeah. let's do it more. I feel bad, like I feel like we didn't talk enough about the actual
0: topic, but maybe
1: we just. I, I think that's
0: more your fault than mine.
1: It's totally <laughs> my fault, but I but I mean, I guess my thing. Are you gonna just change the like title to be like talk about this and other stuff, or what's I'll the make plan? it
0: more. I'll make it more broad. Yeah. Okay,
1: good. yeah. Sorry about that. I kind
0: of <laughs> like. <when laughs> sorry. I, fucking thing. Look, we'll have you on again. We'll we'll explore the topic more over time. I'm sure. Yeah, man. Yeah. And uh, any any parting words for our audience? Uh, no, just thanks for listening. Anything you want to plug? Any any hectic knife news?
1: Uh, no, cause I just I mean it'll be done soon, so it's not there's nothing like right now to say cool. Not really.
0: No. Alrighty. If you haven't checked out the hectic knife trailer, definitely go on there, take a look at it, see what he's doing. It's really fucking cool. I think it's going to be a funny movie. All right. Thanks for listening, guys. See you soon. Bye-bye.